one of the things you can do as a leader is to, to make sure that you're creating a, a culture of clean escalation that prevents backstabbing. And that means that the second that one person on your team comes and talks to you about another person on your team, you hold up the stop sign, and then you encourage them to talk directly to each other. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, coming to you from the Road 55 studio in Edmonton, Alberta, where every episode we feature a different thought leader or best-selling author, all in the name of helping you become the best leader you can be. And I want to thank our episode sponsor, our friends at PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online platform means your employees can learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. People avoid giving each other feedback every day and it's harmful to relationships. Today, we are discussing radical candor where Kim Scott will share her simple framework for giving and receiving feedback to boost your leadership and influence. We'll also explore how her tools can help you scale your business. Now, my very special guest today is Kim Scott. Now, Kim is the author of Just Work, How to Rewrote Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick-Ass Culture of Inclusivity, and also Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and co-founder of the companies Just Work and Radical Candor. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University as well. And before that, Kim managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that. She currently lives with her family in Silicon Valley, and it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the show, Kim. It is an honor to be here with all of you all. Thank you so much for having me. And I, uh, you know, I've been so excited about this conversation uh, for so many reasons, Kim. And you know, I was telling you in the pre-show that so many people have told me that Radical Candor is, is one of the absolute favorite leadership books they have ever read, or it's on their list of, of reads very soon. And so I know we have a lot of uh, excited people tuning, uh, tuning in today. Well, thank you. You just made four long, lonely years of writing worthwhile. Yeah, happy, uh, happy to, happy to help. So, uh, Kim, I can't help but take notice of your very interesting background. I mean, you have a Russian literature degree. How in the heck did you end up in Silicon Valley? <laughs> you know, the thing that has interested me since I was a kid was why is it that some people are happy and productive and living these great lives and other people are so miserable and, uh, and, and having trouble? And, and a lot of it is not the fault of the individual. A lot of it I've, I've come to learn is the fault of the environment that they're in. And so, so what better way to begin exploring that by reading a bunch of Russian novels <laughs> where, where they, they got it badly wrong there in the Soviet Union and uh, but but also you know understanding what we get wrong uh, in in the U.S. and in Canada and everywhere else in the world and what we get right. So you have some fascinating experiences to draw from. I mean, you've, you've worked with some of the most well-known leaders of, of of our time in some of the most well-known largest uh, uh, corporations. I'm interested though if you could take us back to that moment where. Was it a, a eureka light bulb moment? Like, how did you come up with the concept and the term radical candor in the first place? Yeah, so I think it all began with a moment when my boss was criticizing me. Not because radical candor is about the boss criticizing the employee. It should always start with the boss soliciting feedback, soliciting criticism. But because these are the moments that kind of have it, leave an impact on all of us. So I, I just started a new job at Google and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and there in one corner of the room was one of the founders on an elliptical trainer stepping away wearing toe shoes and a bright blue spandex unitard. 
not really what I was expecting to see in the room. And there in the other corner of the room was the CEO and he's doing his email and he's so intent on his computer, it's like his brain has been plugged into the machine. So probably like all of you in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the past month or so, the, it, it was it, it was incredible. This, the CEO kind of almost fell off his chair and he said, what do you need? This is great. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And I walked out of the room, I walked past my boss and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh wow, I screwed something up in there and I'm about to hear about it. And she began the conversation by telling me what had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sense of, I think there's a less polite term for that, but not in the sort of kiss me, kick me, kiss me sense of the word, but really seeming to mean what she said. But of course, all I wanted to do was hear about what had gone wrong. Eventually, she said to me, you said, um, a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I made a brush off gesture with my hand, because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I had a tiger by the tail. And I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then she stopped. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say that I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and by the way, this is a crucial, crucial point. She would never have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps a better listener than I was. But if she hadn't used just those words with me, I never would have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said um, every third word. And this was news to me. I had been giving presentations my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And, and it was almost like I had been going through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach in between my teeth and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me that it was there. And so this really got me to thinking a couple of things really. What, 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 why had no one told me? And what made it so easy for my boss to tell me? And I, as I thought about her leadership style, I realized in her case, it really boiled down to two simple things. She cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being, but she was not so concerned about my short-term feelings that she was unwilling to give me a direct challenge when, when I was screwing something up. She was gonna tell me in, in a way that I would hear it. Uh, because that was in service of my long-term growth. And so those were the things that, that really it boiled down to, caring and challenging. Now, that doesn't really seem so radical. Why do I call it radical cancer? Uh, because it's hard, as you said at the beginning. It's, I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with feedback in the, wor in the workplace. So Kim, it's one thing to give somebody radical candor, but what impact did it actually have on the trajectory of your career? It was really important to my ability to, to establish credibility at Google. There were a lot of presentations in front of a lot of people that were intimidating. So I needed to learn how to present in a way. And frankly, I don't think I would be, I would have been able to build these businesses just work and radical candor if I was saying um every third word still. <laughs> like now my whole career is giving talks. And I will say um once or twice, but I will not say it every third word. The 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 feedback coach was, I mean the um coach was really useful. Yeah, I can tell that it's worked. You're a phenomenal speaker. We uh, we have a bit of a graphic we want to bring up here. And, I, and I'd, I'd love for us to dig in a little bit to the framework itself because there's a right way to do it, and then there's the way that most of us do it. And uh, I would yeah. love for you to sort of go through some of the ways that 
candor or doesn't show up and some of the ways that feedback you know, shows up incorrectly in our conversations. And then let's talk about after that sort of the right way to start to, uh, to give people radical candor. Absolutely. So if you think about caring personally and challenging directly at the same time, that is radical candor. But sometimes we mess up on one dimension or the other or both. So sometimes we remember to challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And then we wind up in obnoxious aggression. Now, in the first draft of Radical Candor, I called this the asshole quadrant because it seemed more radically candid. But I stopped doing that for a really important reason. I found as soon as I did that, people would use this framework to write names in boxes. And I beg of you, please don't use this framework that way. Use this framework like a compass to, to guide specific conversations with specific people to a better place. Now, the problem, the big problem with obnoxious aggression is that it harms other people. In fact, it often can trigger their fight or flight response, and then they can't even hear what you're saying, so you're wasting your breath. The other problem with obnoxious aggression for, for me and for an awful lot of other people is that when I land there, when I realize I've been a jerk, it's not my instinct to move up on the care personally dimension, which is what I ought to do. Instead, it's my instinct to go the wrong way on challenge directly. And when I go the wrong way on challenge directly, I wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. This is where the false apology happens. This is where passive aggressive behavior, political behavior, all of the things that make work most toxic. If, if obnoxious aggression is front stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. And we've all had experiences with this in the workplace. This is kind of where the drama sets in. In fact, if you watch Silicon Valley, the, the, the HBO show, or, or you watch The Office, you're going to see a lot of episodes about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes in that last quadrant where we do remember to show that we care personally. Most people are actually pretty nice people in spite of everything we see on social media. So we do remember to show that we care personally, but we're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that we fail to challenge them directly. And that is what I call ruinous empathy. So that's what radical candor is and also what it isn't. And mistakes that we all make probably on a daily basis. You also talk about obnoxious aggression, although it's very obnoxious, uh, being the second most effective form of leadership and feedback, though. Why is that? You know, I, I don't know about you, so maybe other people, I'd love to hear from other folks, but I would rather know where I stand. Even if this person, if this person is acting like a jerk, I'd rather know what they really think than not know, than be guessing. And so, so it, uh, obnoxious aggression is terrible. I am, let me be very clear. Don't do it. It's bad. It doesn't work very well. But ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity are even worse, are even worse. Because people don't, pe when, when people don't know what's going on, when, when, if, you, if you have a boss, and probably everyone listening has had such a boss who never gives you any feedback, you can feel like a dead man walking or a dead woman walking, a dead person walking, because you know something's not quite right, but you don't know what it is and you don't know how to find out. And, and that is a terrible, that is also a terrible feeling. It's a more subtle feeling than the sort of rage we feel in the face of obnoxious aggression, but it can be even more insidious. Kim, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I, I have held this belief, and I don't know if it's, if it's accurate or not, is that we all need at least one obnoxious, aggressive boss in our life at some period. <laughs> because I assign the kind of motivation to want to prove somebody wrong as, as a very, um, a very like determination, motivation, fueling, like probably out of the wrong places. But it can propel you to some pretty significant heights. Now, do you think that there's any validity to that? Or can you accomplish the same kind of motivation by sticking sticking in the radical candor quadrant i i actually disagree yeah. are we allowed to disagree i disagree I, well, vehemently i was i was, <laughs> was kind of hoping that you would 
uh, to be honest. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's why I bring it up because I've had this debate with lots of people uh, and lots of different thought leaders that we've had on the show just sort of in private. So I would love your, uh, your candor about it. Yeah. So, so I think that for a, a minority of the population, for some people who are very, who, who don't really mind that kind of obnoxious aggression and who are motivated in that way, it can, it, it, it can work. But radical candor would still, even for those people, work better. Because if, you, if, you're, if you've ever worked with someone who really believes in you, has confidence in your abilities, and when you do something great, tells you that it's great, but points out that you could make it even better, those are the kinds of leaders who, who work for everyone, including those who, who are able to pull the gold out of obnoxious aggression. People often ask me, what can they do when they have a boss who's obnoxiously aggressive? And, and I, I think it's possible to pull, pull something decent out of, that, out of that situation. The thing you do is you first, you start by listening, by sort of trying to be incredibly resilient in the face of this obnoxious aggression, to move out of your lizard brain into your prefrontal cortex, and to try to listen to what this person is trying to tell you, and to look for the nugget. You're, you're getting a lot of chaff, but there might be a grain of wheat, right? So throw out all the chaff, ignore all the chaff, take that grain of wheat, and, and give voice to it. Say, I, I hear you, you thought my black t-shirt was no good, so I bought this orange t-shirt, is that better? Or this orange sweatshirt. And, but then you gotta talk to this person later, especially if you're a person who has a hard time with that kind of feedback, as I do. And you gotta say later, look, when you talk to me the way that you talked to me back there, I went into fight or flight mode. And when my brain goes there, and a lot of other people do too, when my brain goes there, then I, I literally can't hear you. So you're wasting your breath. So, so don't, you can't talk to me that way if, if we're going to have an effect, uh, if we're going to work together effectively. Yeah. So I really, one of my favorite, I, I used to work with Ross Laraway. We started a company together and he is a, an enthusiastic little league coach. And he would, he, he had this thing called the book. And the book described for everyone at the end of the game what they had done right, what they had done well. And these kids were so motivated by that kind of praise. They would beg him at the end of every game, you know, Coach Laraway, where's the book? And, and that is what motivates people to, to do their best work. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I appreciate your perspective on that, uh, on that Kim, very much. So you've, you've, set, you've set the record straight here. So now that we understand the framework and, and, and some of the sort of the missteps that we often take when we give feedback, if we take the step to give it at all, let's talk a little bit about how do you actually give radical, radical candor in an effective manner? So if you think about giving it, the first thing you do is stop and solicit it, get it before you give it. There's an order of operations to radical candor. And so you want to ask for feedback before you, you give it. So I'm gonna talk, I'm not gonna, I will get to giving it, I promise, but let's, can we talk about soliciting it first? Absolutely. All right, so when you, how do you solicit feedback? Cause this can be awkward, it can be an awkward situation. If everyone listening can pull out a pen and write down the question that they're gonna use. Our time together today will be very well spent. So I'm gonna tell you the question that I like to use, but don't write it down. Because if you use my question, you're gonna sound like Kim Scott and not like yourself, and it, it, people won't believe you really want the, want the answer. It won't sound authentic. So the question that I like to ask is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And the reason why, if, if you read the book, Radical Candor, you, you'll see that I, that I phrased it a little bit differently in the book. I phrased it, is there anything? And I got, if, if you write a book about feedback, you're gonna get a lot of it. And I got some feedback from people, unfortunately after the book was published, so I couldn't make this edit in the book, but I'll share it with you, is it would, it's better to ask a question, what could I do? If you ask a question, is there anything, you give the person the opportunity to say, oh no, everything's fine. 
And so you want to ask the question in a way that demands an answer, some kind of real answer. So you want to ask it. And then the other thing is, it's not only does it have to sound like you, you're going to need to adjust your question for the person who you're talking to. When you adjust for the other person, that is not inauthentic. <laughs> That's called having a relationship. You, you, you can't talk exactly the same way to every single person who you interact with. So you got to ask the person in a way that they're likely to answer. So the bad news about your feedback. So everybody, take a pen right now. Write down your question. As you're doing that, I'm going to give you the bad news about your question. No matter how good your question is, people are still going to feel uncomfortable. There's no such thing as emotional Novocaine. This is an uncomfortable moment. All you can do is embrace the discomfort. So step number two is to close your mouth, count to six, and wait for the other person to say something. I only made it to three just there. If I'd gone all the way to six, I would have dragged you out onto a conversational limb you never wanted, to, or you would have said, is your Wi-Fi frozen? So six seconds is a long time. Well, Almost feel, no one six can seconds feels six like an hour when you're waiting for some, somebody to tell you something yeah. uncomfortable, I got to tell you. <laughs> it is going to be uncomfortable for you as waiting, and it's going to be uncomfortable for that other person who's enduring that silence. But if you can manage to keep your, your mouth shut, shut for six seconds, the other person's going to say something. So now, congratulations, you've dragged this other person out on a conversational limb they never wanted to go on. They're going to tell you something. This brings us to step number three. You've got to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. Because even though you've just asked for feedback, you're probably going to feel a little bit defensive about it. And you've got to manage your way through that defensive note. So you've got to make sure that you really ask a follow-up question or repeat what they said back to back to them not in a sarcastic bullying way but you know as, in a true questioning way did i understand what you meant and then the last step the fourth step is you want to make sure that you reward the candor so if you agree with the feedback fix the problem and be very make your listening tangible fix the problem in a very public way and ask for more you know did i overcorrect did i undercorrect uh, and if you disagree with the feedback, this is tricky. This is why I think we often fail to solicit feedback, because then we feel wedged. When we, we ask for feedback, the person told us something, and we disagree with it. So what do you do? Look for that 5 or 10% overlap in what the, person, what the person said that you agree with. There's something they said that you can, give, that you can agree with. You, you, rarely will you disagree with 100% of what the person says. So look for the area of agreement and give voice to that just to demonstrate that you're listening and that you're not shut down the feedback. And then say, as for the rest of it, I want to talk to you more about it. And if you're angry, you maybe want to defer the conversation a little bit. But if you're feeling calm, offer a respectful explanation of why you disagree. I think we tend to have this fear that a disagreement is going to hurt our relationship. But in fact, a disagreement can often be the very foundation of a good relationship. So, so a respectful explanation of why you disagree can be a reward for the candor. So that's soliciting feedback. That's where to start. No, that's great, Kim. I, I often think about the emotions that are associated and how, how mo I think most of us get triggered, even if we have a lot of experience with this, when somebody gives us feedback. A, a little trick that I've started using is when I feel myself getting a bit triggered or defensive at somebody's feedback is just pausing, as you say, but then thinking about just how long this person has probably been thinking about giving me this feedback. So it's probably been stressful yeah. for them. But then the other thing, if it's an idea maybe that I don't like or don't agree with, I don't see the merit in right away or some feedback that I've got to digest, it's also the fact that this person cares enough about the relationship and the business that they're thinking about the business in non-work hours. And that's pretty amazing. So what are some other ways that we can ground ourselves to be more receptive to hearing what someone's telling us? It is such an important question because the, the whole essence of, of, I think, what makes both giving and soliciting feedback hard is that we tend, especially at work, to avoid emotion. And so one of the things that, that I try to remember in these moments is that when I feel myself getting angry, you know, sad or mad or, or defensive, and I'm just ignore, brushing the person off as in the um, story, 
I, I try to remember that when we communicate, we communicate on an emotional plane and on an intellectual plane at the same time. And that if I reject the emotional signals, either from myself or from that other person, then I'm just not going to communicate very well. And so what, one of the things I say to people is I beg you just eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally from your vocabulary. Because when, when we have a little bit of heat, <laughs> that means that we care about our work and we care about the people around us. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That is part of our humanity. So we, we want to make sure that we, that we accept those emotions as legitimate and don't just, don't just reject them, but, but try to use them in service of, of better communication. I think another thing that has helped me, both when I'm receiving feedback, but also when I give it and the other person gets angry, which happens sometimes, is to, get in the face of my own anger or someone else's, get curious, not furious. Like, try to, why am I so mad? Why is that person so mad? What's going on here? Yeah, I, I wish that this was an endeavor that you could just do it once, and that would be enough. Uh, and, but I, I can appreciate that the first time somebody gives you some radical candor, it's probably not going to be the, the thing that they would rather tell you. It's not going to be as deep as it probably could be or as meaningful. So how, yeah. do you, how, do you, how do you get this into the organism so that you're continuously for years creating a culture of people telling you the truth? One of the things that you can do if you're, if you're the leader is you can, in general, I say praise in public, criticize in private. But if you're the leader, you're the exception to that rule. And you can solicit public criticism. And, and you can, in fact, if there's someone on your team who's very likely to tell you what they really think, you can, you can go to that person and you can say, could you please do that in public? And you can explain to your team, for, for example, Russ Laraway, who I mentioned earlier, who has written a fantastic book, When They Win, You Win, which is coming out soon, so you should buy his book too. But he told me at one point when we were working together, he said, you know, Kim, you interrupt me a lot. And I knew this was true. And I also knew that I couldn't change that just because he told me. It was like a, a deeply ingrained bad habit. And so what I did in my next staff meeting is I said, look, you all, Russ told me that I interrupt him a lot. And I know it's true. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wear this rubber band. I got one of those big, thick blue rubber bands, you know, that comes around a stalk of broccoli. I put it <laughs> on my wrist. This is the radical bander. And so if you notice me interrupting someone, I want you to snap it. And you're sitting there. And we had the kind of relationship on the team that people did actually snap the rubber band. <laughs> and this was really important. It was important in a couple of ways. It was important because it, it, a, it was good Pavlovian training. It hurt, so I was reluctant. It helped me stop interrupting. But more importantly, it, show, it made my listening tangible. It showed everyone that if you come to me and you give me a little bit of feedback, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond, and I'm going to respond positively. I'm going to reward the candor by fixing the problem. And, and that was very helpful. There was, uh, there was another leader who I worked with who put a big orange box, lock box. He put it in a, in a highly trafficked area near the restrooms. And it was a, it was a feedback box. It's kind of like Ted Lasso did, you know, and, and he solicited feedback. And, and then this, le this leader would ha gave the key to the lock box to someone that everyone trusted on the team. And he would open it up in the all hands and he'd pull out the questions that were in the lockbox and, uh, and answer them. And, and they were questions, they were, they were often criticism of him, and he would answer them publicly. And the thing that happens when you answer criticism publicly as the leader is it gives you an opportunity to show a good way to respond to feedback, uh, to, to lead by example. And it also is very efficient, because if you're the leader and one person has some criticism, there's probably 50 other people who have the same criticism. And this gives you an opportunity to answer it once and not 50 times. So it's, it's more efficient. Another thing that you can do as a leader is you can tell stories. What is your um, story? What's that moment in your career when someone gave you some radical candor, when they told you something that maybe stung a little bit in the moment. I mean, it wasn't easy for me to hear that I sounded stupid in front of the CEO and 
the founders. But it's maybe it stung a little bit in the moment, but it stood you in good stead for the next five, 10 years. And if you share, if you make yourself vulnerable enough, you share that with your team and you share it in the context of the radical candor framework, then it'll it literally people's brains get on the same wavelength when we tell each other stories. Yeah, that's uh, good advice, good insight. You're making me, I was trying to think about what's some radical candor I've been given you know, in the last couple of years that has been my um moment. And it was, uh, it was fairly early in the pandemic. I, I got some feedback from a colleague that every time somebody had an idea that I didn't agree with, my body language significantly told that person that I thought their idea was <laughs> in fact stupid. And uh, that was mortifying to hear. And uh, it certainly shaped how I respond to people's ideas. I think a, a great deal at this point. So uh, I know that the yeah, listeners- Yeah, that's great. Learning, learning how to manage one's body language is tricky. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's probably one of the things about uh, all of the Zoom meetings that we have had in the last two years that has been somewhat helpful, even though you may have Zoom fatigue. But I know I've become a lot more uh, sort of hypersensitive to little, you know, little body language pieces and things that might not have been as visible or as noticeable to me prior to that. Yeah, because you've got a mirror in front of you. You've, yeah. You're watching yourself. Yes. Although I will say one good, one good trick for Zoom fatigue is to turn off self-view. That's right. Well, <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons that there's a strong correlation to Botox uh, injections uh, skyrocketing in the last couple of years. So uh, I, I know that almost everybody that's listening today, Kim, has somebody that they need to demonstrate some radical candor with. So why don't we shift a little bit now and, and set the stage for us? So what should we be doing to make sure that that conversation goes well. When you go into a conversation where you're going to give some feedback, A, you want to make sure you've solicited first. I know I'm like a, a, a repetitive on that, but it's important. You also want to make sure that you have that you have focused on the good stuff, that you have given voice to the things you appreciate about that person, that you've expressed gratitude. Uh, in in your own head and also to the person. Because very often what happens, we, we talk a lot about technical debt. Very often in, in these feedback conversations, we have feedback debt. And so somebody's been doing something that's been bothering us. It's been bothering us for a long time. And pretty soon we forget all about all the things we like about that person and appreciate about that person. Because all we can notice is this one thing that this person is doing that bothers us that we haven't even told them about yet. So remember, don't forget about the goods. Remember to have the good stuff top of mind. And but now now it's time to have this conversation. You want to go into this conversation humbly. The reason why I call it candor and not truth is that if I tell you I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm kind of implying I have a pipeline to God and you don't know anything. And that's not a great way to start a conversation. So to me, candor implies here's how I understand the situation. I also want to know how you understand the situation. So that is important. And you also want to make sure that you state your intention to be helpful. You want to make sure that you don't let too much time pass, that you that you offer this feedback immediately. The longer you wait, the harder it's going to be to do. And, and you're really usually you, you tell yourself, oh, I'm waiting for the right moment. What you're really doing is I'm trying never to say this thing. So be aware of that kind of rationalization. In the before times, I said, have this conversation in person. That's often not possible right now. So have it synchronously and be conscious of whether you're going to have it over video or whether it's better just to pick up the phone and call someone. There's a lot of research that shows that when we're on Zoom or even when we're in person face to face, if we're sitting across the table from someone, that can be that can feel hostile to the other wow. person. So so and also we were talking about body language. Often we misinterpret one another's body language. There's, there may be more noise than signal in, in our ability to interpret facial expressions and body language. Yeah. So it might be better just to have a synchronous conversation where you're talking. But whatever you do, don't send an email, don't send a text, don't put your feedback in some kind of tool. You got to talk to the person. You got to actually talk and listen to the words they're saying to you. Uh, and, and then you also want to make sure that you praise in public and do praise. Remember, focus on the good stuff and criticize in private. You don't, as I said, when you give public criticism, you trigger someone's sort of fight or flight response. And last but not least, definitely not least, you want to offer context 
observation result. You don't want to criticize someone's personality. There's a world of difference between my boss saying in the meeting, when you said, um, every third word, it made you sound stupid and saying, Kim, the problem is you're too stupid to do this job. Like, what do I do with that? And so you want to make sure you're not either praising or criticizing someone's fundamental personality attributes, but you're talking about things they can change. And a good way to make sure that you're doing that is to, is to discipline yourself to say, what's the context in the meeting? This, by the way, is why it's also good to do it immediately. You don't have to spend a lot of time on the context. Observation, when you said, um, every third word, it made you sound stupid result. So, so try using that, that framework. Kim, you've been the part of uh, some very large organizations that were scaling up fast, rapid growth, and having to cascade these tools throughout the entire organization. And I know that's a significant challenge. I mean, it's hard enough for an individual to learn these techniques, let alone train their leadership team how to use it, let alone get that into a 200-person organization. So everybody's doing it. I wonder if you have some sort of simple tips and how-tos on how to cascade and scale some of these practices. I think that one of the best things you can do is to discipline yourself and teach your managers to make sure that everyone who has a one-on-one -on -one with their direct report, which they should do uh, every week, uh, is soliciting feedback. You, you want to make sure that you're, you're leaving five minutes at the end. I mean, mostly a one-on-one -on -one is about the, the employee's agenda, but you want to make sure you're saving a little time at the end to solicit feedback. It's very hard to operationalize impromptu two-minute conversations. It would be a little creepy, but I think you can. There's a lot of things you can do that remind people that it's important to have them. One of the things you can do as a leader is to to make sure that you're creating a, a culture of clean escalation that prevents backstabbing, and that means that the second that one person on your team comes and talks to you about another person on your team, you hold up the stop sign. You don't, this is the one time when listening is destructive. You don't listen to this. You say, have you talked to so-and-so? And if the answer is no, then you encourage them to talk directly to each other. If the answer is yes, and I couldn't come to agreement, say, okay, then we're gonna have a three-way conversation. I, mean, I need both of you in the room at the same time. That's clean escalation. And if you as a leader are disciplined about that, pretty, and you call it clean escalation, Pretty soon, people will quit talking badly about one another behind uh, behind each other's backs because they know they, they're not going to get away with it. That is really important. Another thing you can do as a leader is you can have what I call speak truth to power meetings. And, that, and this can feel a little bit uh, in conflict with clean escalation. But you as the boss, let's say you're a manager of managers. So let's say I have five people on my team and I'm going to go speak to their teams, to each of their teams separately. So it's instead of a one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to have a, a, a meeting with my direct reports teams without my direct report in the room. And let's say my direct report is named uh, Samantha. So what can Samantha do or stop doing that would make it easier for you all to work with her? And I go around the room and I get advice and I type notes and I say this is a not for attribution meeting because I want to acknowledge it can be difficult to speak truth to power. But the goal of this is in service of making Samantha a better leader and also helping you all learn how to talk to Samantha directly. And if you do that routinely with all of your direct reports, you begin to help them be better managers and to learn what they can do to, to, to encourage their team to, to speak truth to power. I could see how uncomfortable that would be at the start, but just how helpful and valuable it, it would is. be. Yeah. And uncomfortable, that's a really important word in this. Radical candor is profoundly uncomfortable. And a, mm -hmm. a big part of it is learning how to move through that discomfort. So speaking of discomfort, uh, you released this book into the wild, so to speak. And, and as, uh, as your loyal audience starts to read it, uh, you already mentioned and referenced a little bit of feedback that you received. But what kind of radical candor did you receive about Radical candor. Radical candor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot. The most important feedback I got came from, I was, I was giving a radical candor presentation at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, someone I like and respect enormously. 
and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And she pulled me aside after the talk and she said, you know, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Canner. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. And she explained to me that it's when, when she would offer someone even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I, I knew this was true. And it helped me understand four things at the same time. The first was that I had not been the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be, that I want to be. I had not been an upstander. I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly pleasant and, and cheerful in every meeting I had ever been at with her. And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be ticked off about at work, as, as we all do, but she was not allowed to show it in that workplace, which considered itself very inclusive, but it was not for her. So that was number one. Number two was I realized all of a sudden that I had been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to me as a woman in the workplace. I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. So I would pretend, it's hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit this, but I would pretend that things were not happening, that were happening to me. And that was, that was a big problem. I needed to come to grips with those things. Uh, even bigger problem was that I realized all of a sudden that even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim did I want to think of myself as a perpetrator. And yet, as a white woman in the workplace, I had certainly been guilty of creating work environments that were not as inclusive as, as I wanted to. And last but not least, I realized when she said that as a leader, I had failed to address a whole host of issues to create the kind of environment in which everyone could just work, just in the justice sense of the word, but also in the just get shit done sense of the word. And that was what prompted me to write Just Work, the next book, which is really kind of takes the problem of workplace injustice, which sounds monolithic and insoluble, and break it down into its component parts so that we can fix the problem. Yeah, that's, um, not only is, is the sort of the concept there very powerful and, and really, really important, but there's, there's something else that uh, kind of jumped out at me about about you in radical candor, and it was that you seem to be very comfortable, and I think more than I would normally read in in, in a book, spotlighting and highlighting the, your mistakes and your missteps. And I just wonder how did you get to a point where you were so good at just sort of, and I don't know how uncomfortable this is for you, Kim, but just exposing all of the sort of glaring. Um, mistakes that you have made in your really successful career? <laughs> you know, I, I think radical candor probably begins with self-criticism. And, and so one of the things that, that I tried to do, especially as I was writing, the mistakes that I described in radical candor were not nearly as, uh, didn't feel nearly as frankly scary to confess as the ones that I, that I shared in Just Work. But I felt like in a lot of ways, it was probably safer, it didn't feel safe, but it was probably safer for me than a lot of other people to confess these mistakes. So for example, one of the things that I most regret doing in my career was asking uh, a person who felt that I had created a hostile work environment for women, I, I, I wound up, she wound up leaving the company and I, I had her sign an NDA, which I should not, that is illegal now in California. And it's good that it's, that is a misuse of the NDA. I should never have done that. Mm -hmm. But I think it would, I think it was much easier for me as a woman to admit that I had done that as a leader than it would be for, for a lot of men, even men who are more successful than, than I have been uh, to, to admit. So I felt like, cause I think we're at this moment in history when for the first time, we're starting to come to grips with a number of injustices. I think in the United States and, and, and all over the world, really, Black Lives Matter has made it harder to deny racism that, that, is, that is so prevalent in our society. I think the Me Too movement has made it so much harder to pretend like sexual assault and, uh, and harassment aren't happening. And I think that's a really good thing. But I think that, that we're also at a dangerous moment. I, I, I think 
the real story of Oedipus Rex is not about the Oedipal complex. The real story there is when he finally was forced to confront what he had done wrong. Instead of trying to make it right, he gouged his eyes out. And I want to make sure that we don't do that as a society at this moment of time. And so I thought that the thing that I could best do is to take a really hard look at the mistakes I had made and to share them openly and to share suggestions about how other people can avoid making those mistakes. Yeah, and it's, it's just so supremely powerful, Kim, to hear somebody of your uh, background and track record you know, talk about those types of things. It really does give license for everybody else to say, wow, like if, you know, if, if Kim was as successful as she has been and she worked in some of the organizations with the types of leaders, the, the demanding leaders that she has worked with as peers, uh, surely we can give ourselves a little bit more grace to make, uh, to make some of the mistakes that, that, uh, that we always make. Uh, and, and speaking of some of the experiences that you've had, I mean, you, you were a, a significant um, uh, a person at Google, a significant team player at Apple. I mean, two of the most innovative companies that the world has ever known. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you an innovation question or two. And, and the first one that I had was, how, how does a typical company find time for people to spend time on innovation? Because so many people are just overwhelmed and overloaded with their day job, it just seems like time for innovation for the typical employee is reserved for these world-class organizations that are making billions of dollars that can afford to do it. But how does a typical company sort of do it? You know, the, the techniques that were used at Google and Apple are very, very different. And, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to leave Google and go to Apple is because it seemed like if, if Google did X, Apple did Y, and yet both companies seem to be very innovative. So the first thing I want to say is, there, it seems kind of obvious, but there's not a formula for innovation. <laughs> like, you got to do it in a way that works for your organization. So at Google, the way that Google did it was they had this, 20, this notion of 20% time. And first, let me say that 20% time was a myth. Uh, it was really 120% time. I didn't. I worked at Google for six years. My husband was there for 11 years as an engineering leader. Neither one of us knew anyone who actually took 20% time. So it was kind of a myth. But it was an important. And, and there were. I'm not saying there was no one. There were people who took 20% time. I just didn't happen to know any of them. So so. But it was an important myth. And and the idea of 20% time was that everyone at Google could spend 20% of their time working on whatever they wanted to work on. And this was an important myth because it gave people a sense of freedom. And feeling free at work, uh, command and control, you cannot command and control your way to, this is one thing that I think is absolutely true, you cannot command and control your way to innovation. You need people to feel like they are free at work. Radical candor was actually an important, I mean, we didn't call it that at Google because I hadn't, actually, I came up with that term in an elevator ride with Dan Pink much later. But the, I, the, 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 the practice was very much alive and well at both Google and Apple. And part of what was important at Google was also this notion that great ideas come from everywhere. And that was equally true at Apple, that, that there was, there, Great ideas were not hierarchical. The, the CEO did not have the most great ideas. It was not uncommon at Apple to, to, for somebody who had just joined the company, who was right out of college, to come back from lunch and find Steve Jobs sitting at his cube waiting for him to talk about what he was working on. So, so, so there, were, there was, not a, there was a, a real effort to, it, both companies tried to get rid of hierarchy altogether, and that didn't work. But to make sure that communication could happen everywhere and that, that there was an effort to listen to great ideas. So 20% time is one way. At Apple, they did something very different. There was no notion of 20% time at Apple. They did have a blue sky project. But the main way I think that Apple innovated and made sure that people have time for innovation was to say no to great ideas. Tim Cook, the Tim Cook Doctrine talks about, we say no to great ideas every day. And er, there's earlier, there's a bunch of great videos of Steve Jobs saying focus is about saying no. 
And this was really important because if you, if you really decide what's the most important thing to do and you don't do any of the things that are not the most important thing, and it's not just saying no to bad ideas, it's saying no to good ideas, it's even saying no to great ideas, so that you can have time to really innovate on the things that are important and interesting then you will your people will have time to innovate no matter no matter how small you are you don't have to have billions of dollars to innovate so how did they define the playing field or the sandbox then Kim at Apple like how did they ensure that the the ideas for innovation and what they focused on were directionally aligned i think they didn't i think they didn't i, th I th it wasn't it wasn't like there was some centralized, these are the areas we're going to innovate in, these are the areas we're not going to innovate in. What would happen is, is there would be, let's say for an iOS launch, there would be the notion of the directly responsible individual. And so they, they would come together and decide what are the top level features of, of, the, of you know, in the next release and what who is responsible for each of those top level features. And then that, that was now that person's sort of sandbox. And they could innovate in that sandbox in, in any way they saw fit, right? And, and they were responsible for figuring it out, figuring out what ideas were worth playing around with, what ideas were not. I mean, there were some projects at Apple that were explicitly experimental, that people were working on new technologies that might go into some future project. But those, the ideas, the, the decision to work on those ideas usually came from the individual who was interested in that idea. And, uh, and the, of course, it was up to the leaders to say yes and no, to, you know, yes, go work on that technology. No, we're not going to work on that technology. But the ideas, Steve Jobs said, we hire people who tell us what to do, not the other way around. And so the ideas come from the team, not, not from the leader of the team, usually. Yeah, that is so interesting. And, and it's also uh, very helpful. Uh, I could go on about that uh, in, a, in a whole other episode. I, I, I do have some questions for you, uh, a little bit more on the personal side too, Kim. And, and one of the things that really you know, struck a chord with me is that you were sort of, a, I think, a self-proclaimed high achiever. You like fast-paced, chaotic environments. And I couldn't help but wonder, what was it, what was it that was so compelling that made you leave sort of the corporate world, in a sense, to become a thought leader. I know you founded two companies uh, in that time, but what is the thing that sort of pulled you towards this thought leadership instead of staying in the executive chair at a large corporation? You know, uh, this is a true confession. My whole business career was one plan, one giant plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. <laughs> I've always, what I always really wanted to be was a writer, actually. And I decided pretty early in my, probably back in college when I was studying Russian literature, that I could not make a, I couldn't feed myself writing novels. I mean, some people can, but it's like saying, you know, I'm going to be a musician. Like it's a very hard way to make a living. And I decided that what I wanted to do is, is sort of make as much money as possible and save as much money as possible and then quit for a year or two and write. And that's what I did. I actually, I have a number of unpublished novels where I would, I would go work, save as much money as I could and then take a whole year off to write. So with Radical Candor, I decided that, that, that I, a lot of the drama and the things that are interesting to me, that the character development that is interesting about writing a novel applied to the business world, applied to the world where I had made where I had made my career to keep body and soul together. And that I could write a book that would be just as much fun as writing a novel, but that would be that would offer people practical tips on how to build organizations where where people can be where people can be unleashed, as you say. Love it. Where people can can be their best. I think that's going to become a soundbite right there for future marketing campaigns, Kim. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I love Unleashed. I love that idea. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that. You also worked with the late uh, Bill Campbell. And, and for listeners that are hearing the name Bill Campbell for the first time, he's sort of known as the trillion dollar coach. Uh, Eric Schmidt and others 
uh, wrote a book by that same title and, and he was this phenomenal coach to all of the well-known CEOs in Silicon Valley and famously known for never charging a dollar for any of this coaching. I wondered, Kim, like what, what made Bill such a special person and such an impactful coach? Bill was, was, I did not know him well. My husband actually knew him better because my husband was his kid's little league coach. Yeah. So there you go. But I, I did get a, an opportunity to, to he, he offered to come mentor my team at Google because one of the people who worked for me really admired him. He said, the thing you could do for me that is better than anything else is get me a meeting with Bill Campbell. Was so this Bill Campbell's, way, this wasn't what, Bill Campbell's son, was it? Yeah, yeah, I said, well, I have an in, so. <laughs> and uh, and so, so Bill came and talked to the team. And I, the things that, I, that really I admired about him were that he was so warm. You knew he cared about you. He was interested in you as a human being, regardless of like what you were doing for the company that he was on the board of. He cared about people. He really was, was an incredibly warm person. And, and that was true just of, of how he was. And he was able to express it and show it. It's, it's kind of, I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable uh, showing that they care. But like he was like that shower the people you love with love kind of guy. He was just really, and so he was really good at the care personally. But he also was not afraid to, to, to poke and to point out where you could be better but always in service of helping you grow as uh, as an individual. So he was he was kind of a, a, a great a, a poster child for radical candor, if you will. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of that uh, some of that background, uh, Kim. Your work has literally impacted millions of people, and I can't help but ask, like, what does that mean to you? You know, it means the world because I, it took me four years to write Radical. I thought I could write it in three months and four years later, I was still editing. It took me a long time to write the book. And the whole time I was writing it, I was like, is this going to be yet another unpublished book? I, you know, I had walked away from, from a lot of income in order to write the book. And it was really... But, but it was really important to me. I decided when I was at business school, I decided I'm not gonna get on this hedonic treadmill. At a certain point, I'm gonna decide I have enough and then I'm gonna do the work that I love. And I'm gonna do the work that I love because I love it, not because of some, some gain from it. But I will tell you the moments, the, the, the kinds of moments that are the best moments in my career happen when the following kind of thing happened. I, was, I gave a talk and and a young woman came up to me after the talk and she said, Kim, you know, I, I became a manager for the first time about a year ago and it was really hard. And, and tears kind of filled her eyes. I could imagine the kinds of things that were happening to her that it was really, I knew it was really hard. And then she said, and then I got your book and I felt like I had a big sister every step of the way with me. And though, like there's, that's pure gold. That is why I feel like, when we do the work that we love, we have a bigger impact with it. With with it, and and that that's the whole game. That's how that's how we become unleashed. Yes, is to do the work, do the work that we love. And uh, and you know, I also want to acknowledge. I was I was working with another writer recently who said it's a privilege, and and I was privileged. I, I don't think I could, you know, I was lucky to be able to take four years off of work to be able to write the book. That, that and I would like to see better advances for more authors so that more people can write. Yes, absolutely. Well, and that brings us to the, uh, the final portion of today's conversation. That's everybody's favorite part, I think, is three and 30. So Kim, you've put together three simple steps that anybody can take to start to apply some of your radical candor framework. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just going through and describing what, uh, what each of those are. So the, the first one was ask a go-to question and embrace the discomfort. Yes, so that is what I was talking about earlier when I said, how do you solicit feedback? You want to ask people what you could do, or in your own words, what you could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with you. And you, the, the, it's gonna be an uncomfortable moment. There's no way to make it comfortable. You just, you gotta drag it out of people. You gotta drag it out of people. 
And once you hear it, it's going to be hard to hear. So step number two is to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. For example, the other day, my daughter said to me, Mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately, this wave of parental guilt washed over me. I thought, I'm spending too much time at work. I feel so guilty. And then I thought, i got to get over my own feelings about this and make sure I understand. So I said, who do you wish I were? And she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. So I can do a little more work as far as she was concerned. So you want to make sure you're really taking the time to understand. And then last but not least, you've got to reward the candor. People take a risk when they tell you what they really think, especially if they're giving you feedback about something you've said or done that's biased, prejudiced, or bullying. And you've got to reward that candor by either fixing the problem or having a deeper conversation about why you disagree. Because it's like, if you, if you think about money and investment, if, if we invest money in a, risky, in a risky venture, we expect a high return. Radical candor is risky, and people expect a high return. You got to make sure they get it. Yeah, those are some great tips. Kim, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you for, uh, for making some time for us today and for our listeners. I know uh, the audience is going to get a, just a ton of value from, uh, from your wisdom and your insights and, and your tools. Where do you want people to find you? Where can they track you down? So go to justworktogether.com for advice on how to create a kick-ass culture of inclusivity and go to radicalcandor.com for advice on, on how to make a radically candid culture. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kimball Scott. And for everybody else looking to stay in touch with results, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do that. Of course, you can follow us on your favorite social platforms at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can follow us on LinkedIn at results. And of course, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well, in addition to where your favorite podcasts are found. And you can find all of our episodes, including today's conversation with the wonderful Kim Scott. And you can find the, uh, the link there at unleashresults.com. So Kim, thank you uh, once again for being here today. Uh, we look forward to further discussions and staying in touch with you on, uh, on Twitter, as, as you mentioned. Thanks so much. Loved the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Now, if you found today's conversation helpful, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues who like learning as much as you do. And if you're a leader of a business and you're ready to take the next step because you know there's unleashed potential that exists within it, don't wait another minute. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.